Hello again. Sometimes when I'm settling in to give a Dhamma talk here, I wonder, maybe it will be better just to sit and listen to the Pukeko and the Tui and the Kiwi, Mm -hmm. not fill up the evening with more words. We'll see. Hopefully you're ready for another Dharma adventure. So a few times over the course of this retreat, I've touched into what are known as the three universal characteristics of experience, namely anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And these are usually translated as impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self or, as I've been sometimes rephrasing them, as impermanent, imperfect, and impersonal, partly because having three imps is easier to remember. So in my talk about working with afflictive thought patterns the other night, I spoke about how these three ways of understanding our experience can help to release the grip of clinging and resistance. Because clinging and resistance are what tend to keep those painful mind states locked in place. So tonight I thought it might be useful to come back to the third of these three characteristics, which is anatta, or not so. Because of the three, it's usually the one that's most difficult for people to understand intellectually. And it sometimes is a cause of confusion or doubt. And in some ways this isn't surprising because actually the deepest understandings of anatta, they come from embodied insight, not from thinking cognitively, conceptually about it. Even so, it can be helpful to have some context to orient to because there are some very practical benefits that come from understanding this process of how does the self, the sense of self get constructed? How does it get solidified through clinging? And how can we deconstruct that and help the clinging to release? So first then, just to situate anatta or not self in the context of the three universal insights, because there is a relationship between all of them. So the first one, anicca impermanence, points to the fact that all experiences is changing on different time frames, fast or slow, but essentially nothing lasts forever. Now, on one level this is pretty obvious. Just in mindfulness of breathing we sit down to pay attention to the breath and right there we know rising and falling, the breath changing from inhale to exhale to inhale. In the same way, we pay attention to physical sensations, and we see these two are constantly changing. And even experiences such as pain, which we so often tell ourselves are solid and permanent, when we look more closely, we see that they are also changing on a moment-to-moment level. And certainly we can see this in our mental activity, our thoughts and emotions, moods and mind states also changing. And this is good news, because if our mind states didn't have the capacity to change, there would be no possibility of awakening, of freedom. So for most people, impermanence is 
the most obvious of these three characteristics. And then the second one, dukkha, can be a little bit harder to grasp because the word dukkha is very commonly translated as suffering. And this can lead to misinterpretations of the discourses presenting statements such as all experiences suffering or even worse, sometimes the first noble truth is translated as life is suffering which obviously doesn't sound very appealing. (laughs) And it's not true. It's just not true in our own experience. All of us have experienced many moments of ease, of happiness, of delight, of joy, as many of you have described during this retreat. And so in this context, the word dukkha is more usefully translated as unsatisfactoriness in the sense of unreliable because of the truth of impermanence no experience is capable of providing lasting fulfillment lasting satisfaction and although we might resist this fact if we really pay attention to our experience we can recognize this unreliability lurking in even the most pleasant experiences there was always that shadow of knowing that it's going to end, it's going to change. And then we'll have to go searching after the next hit of pleasant experiences to keep us going. And at first we might grudgingly acknowledge this truth of unsatisfactoriness. But over time we recognize that accepting it more fully, that actually leads to greater ease and to a deeper and more sustainable form of happiness. Because we're not so caught up in chasing after this, that and the other thing to try and find that elusive, lasting happiness. And we're no longer expecting the next hit of happiness to finally do it for us once and for all. We don't get so disappointed when it doesn't deliver what it seemed to promise. And instead we start to orient towards a more reliable source of ease and happiness, which is that inner capacity to experience some degree of contentment, no matter what our external circumstances are. So as the practice progresses, we see the truth of dukkha as unsatisfactoriness more and more clearly. And we can appreciate how that clear seeing strengthens our capacity to be happy, to be content. The third universal characteristic, though, of anatta, usually translated as not-self, is for most people much harder to grasp and harder to understand why it's useful. And I think this is partly because in English the phrase not-self Again, doesn't sound that appealing. So for some people it sounds incomprehensible, confusing, meaningless. And sometimes they tie themselves up in knots trying to make sense of this intellectually. But again, that's part of the problem. Because understanding not-self on a deeper level comes from a more intuitive wisdom. It's an embodied experience rather than a concept to be got. And I think a second problem that comes from confusion about the term self 
that's included in the term not-self. And this is partly because the way the Buddha used the word self and the way we more usually think of self in a Western psychological context is different. So in Western psychology, it's desirable to have a healthy sense of self. So when we hear the term not-self, if we don't really investigate it, it might seem that the Buddha is asking us to negate that. And that somehow the goal of practice is to try and make ourselves into a nobody, a non-entity, some kind of colorless, characterless being with no individuality or expressiveness whatsoever. Now, even if that were possible, it's a serious misunderstanding of what not-self is pointing to. It's not at all what the Buddha was asking us to do. And in fact, although it might sound contradictory, deeply understanding this characteristic of not-self actually improves a healthy sense of self. So to get a better sense of what not-self refers to, we need to understand a little bit more about what the Buddha meant by the term self, because it had a specific meaning in the social context that the Buddha was teaching in, in India 2,600 years ago. So, according to Buddhist scholars, the Pali word atta, or atman, was commonly used to mean an unchanging essence, or a kind of an eternal soul, in the Indian philosophical and spiritual traditions at the time of the Buddha. And in the Pali language, if we put an a, or an an, in front of a word, it negates the word. So atta, self or soul, becomes anatta, not self. Now what was, and actually still is, totally radical about the Buddha's teachings is that through his own direct experience, he understood that this sense of self that we usually assume to be a fixed, solid, permanent entity, just who I am, is actually a construct. It's a process that our minds create out of the flux of physical sensations and sense impressions and feeling tones and perceptions and mental concepts. All of those get elaborated into this character that we call me. And the Buddha saw through this process very directly, very deeply in his own experience. And he understood that because everything is changing, everything is in flux. It's impossible for there to be a fixed and permanent entity who is experiencing it all. Now, maybe on an intellectual level we can have some understanding of the truth that all of those things are constantly changing. And yet still, on a more felt-sense level, beneath all of that, there's just that sense that but this is me. This is who I am. And it's a natural part of the human experience. We're not trying to deny that. And it's just common sense that I'm me, I'm not you. We each have our own unique life stories and conditioning and personalities and so on. So the subtlety of the Buddha's teaching on not-self is that it invites us to look at where we cling to that sense of me. Because it's the clinging that creates the problems. 
To the extent that we take this sense of me to be solid and fixed and permanent and real, to that extent it causes dukkha, suffering. (coughs) So as an analogy for this, I sometimes use the metaphor of going to the cinema to watch a film. Well, actually, back in the days before digital, when they had film projectors and spools of film, maybe some of you don't even remember that, but (laughs) you know what they look like. So, actually, we don't even need to go to a movie theater, because a lot of time we're playing those movies in our own heads. And I don't know if you've noticed, I don't think it's a coincidence, but we often seem to be the star of the show. (laughs) And the movie is called something like All About Me. <laughs> and we write the script, and we're the lead actor, and we're the producer, and the publicist, and the creative director, and we choose the soundtrack. <laughs> and we get so fascinated and so enchanted by all the dramas that are playing out on the movie screen that we don't even recognize that we ourselves are fabricating that entire experience. So in some ways, the teachings in the Satipatthana Sutta are an invitation from the Buddha to turn our attention away from the movie screen, turn around and look instead at the projector to understand the mechanics, the mechanism that's creating this whole illusion. So for some of you, that still might not sound very appealing because of this reflex that clings to the concept of being a someone, being a self. Even though on other levels we might also recognize that there is dukkha associated with it. In fact, just in ordinary society, in mainstream society, in the English language, at least in English, there are quite a few words that highlight the unpleasantness that's often associated with clinging to a sense of self. So a few years ago, I was trying to find a synonym for the word self-conscious. And I think I may have been at the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, so I had access to their library, and there was a big dictionary there. So I looked it up, and I was surprised to discover what a huge list of words can be prefixed by the word self. There were pages and pages. And then the second thing I noticed was that most of these words had pretty unpleasant connotations, unpleasant associations. So just to get a sense of that, I'll read you just a very edited selection of them. And as you hear these words, you might notice any responses you might have. Here's just a few. Self-absorbed. Self-aggrandizing. Self-approving. Self-centered. Self-complacent. Self-congratulatory, self-conscious, self-delusion, self-important, self-indulgent, self-pitying, self-referencing, self-righteous, self-satisfied, self-serving, etc., etc., etc. As I said, that's a very edited list. So. I'm curious, I don't know how you felt when you heard those words, but for me there was this sense of shrinking, tightening, contracting, just a little feeling of uh, stiffening. 
And that's just from hearing the words, just touching into the concept of all of those self-referencing words. But we can know this in our own direct experience. And I think all of us have felt that sense of contraction when the sense of self gets strongly activated. And just to be clear, the sense of self can get activated in relation to pleasant or unpleasant situations. So, for example, in terms of pleasantness on retreat, we might have a be sitting and then there's a sudden dropping into more calm or more clarity, and then there's a sense of, yes, finally, now I'm getting it. My meditation is going so well. Finally, I'm on track. Nibbana, here I come. (laughs) And if we have enough mindfulness, we can notice that this crystallization of a sense of self creates tightening and narrowing and limitation. And this energetically feels quite different from the experience we can also sometimes have when the sense of self is less activated, less strong, at those times when we're just present with the ever-changing flow of experience. And often this comes with feelings of ease and lightness, acceptance, spaciousness, being open to new possibilities. And sometimes that sense of ease just naturally gives rise to the Brahma-vihara of kindness and compassion joy and equanimity. So as a sense of self lessens, there's a shift towards the different flavors of love becoming more available. However, I think one reason that many people find the the idea of anatta so difficult, again, is to do with how it's translated into English. Because in English this term, not-selves, tends to set up a duality of apparent opposites, self versus not-self. And this can reinforce the misunderstanding that the goal of the practice is for the self to somehow get rid of itself so that it can stop all that selfing and instead become a much better (laughs) not-self. And so you can hear in that, sort of it's like a dog chasing its tail. It's futile and it only ties us up in knots. So in my own practice, it's been helpful rather than approaching not-self as a binary, instead to think of it as a continuum or a spectrum between at one end a very strongly activated sense of self and at the other a quieter, less activated sense of self. And then we can practice noticing at any point in time where are we along that spectrum. So even right now, as you're listening to this talk, you might notice how strong or relatively less is your sense of self in the moment. Maybe for some of you, possibly, there's a sense of getting tangled up in these ideas, maybe feeling like you're not getting it. Possibly there's some traces of irritation or frustration, judgment or self-judgment. And then the sense of self can kick in and become someone who never understands things properly or was always a bad student or whatever the story might be. 
But instead of reinforcing the story, it might be possible to just know oh, the sense of self is pretty strongly activated right now without adding any extra to it. For others of you, maybe listening, perhaps not all of this is making sense, but it's okay, you're content to let the stream of words and ideas flow through, trusting that whatever's useful might stick. And so there might be a basic sense of contentment, openness, presence. So for you, the sense of self in this moment might be quite faint, just quietly there in the background. And again, you can just practice knowing, noticing. Oh, sense of self is less strong right now. And it's good to practice knowing when the sense of self is less strong. Because very often, the sense of self then takes ownership of the lesser sense of self. I'm getting pretty good at not self these days. I wish they gave out awards on retreat because I'd probably win the award for the best not self. (laughs) And so you see that reflex that so quickly takes ownership of any experience, good or bad. And then we flip from one end of the spectrum to the other. And so the more we get used to seeing when we are getting more entangled with experience and identifying with it, it becomes easier to see the dukkha, the suffering of that, and then that naturally motivates us to want to let it go. So again, just to reiterate, it's not the sense of self that's the problem, it's the clinging to it and the identifying with it that's the issue. And there's a core teaching by the Buddha that's sometimes presented as summarizing the whole of his teaching. And this teaching says, nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. Nothing whatsoever is to be clung to as I or mine. And when I first heard that statement early on in my own practice, it brought up all kinds of resistance. And I spent quite a bit of time arguing with it. Nothing? It's a bit extreme. Well, what about X? Surely X is okay. (laughs) And X was whatever I was currently clinging to. So clinging to a relationship. Surely that's okay. Clinging to my health, well, isn't that okay? Clinging to being on retreat, clinging to understand these teachings, surely that's got to be allowable. But I would go back to the statement and have to acknowledge it does say nothing. (laughs) Nothing is to be clung to, which doesn't leave a lot of room for argument. And then finally I realized that it was the clinging that was being pointed to as the problem, not the thing itself. So for most of us, this practice starts by seeing where we do cling, where we do commonly create an identity out of our experience. And to help with this, the Buddha gave us yet another numbered list, the list of the five aggregates of clinging, or the five aggregates subject to clinging. And as many of you know, sometimes... In talks like this, when I get to numbered lists, I ask for some audience participation and I see if people can name what the list is. But actually, the last time I did this, somebody said, 
They hadn't been clinging to the clinging aggregate, so they didn't know what they were. <laughs> so you're off the hook. So I'll just give you the list. And just to acknowledge, I'm going to go through this fairly quickly. We don't have a lot of time tonight, but I think hopefully it will be helpful even to have a brief overview for the what's left of this retreat and then for the rest of your lives. So, the five are first, material form, which includes our bodies. Second, feeling tone, which we've already spent quite a bit of time exploring. Three is perception or recognition. Four is volitional mental formations. And five is consciousness. So these are pretty technical terms, and I'll just run through them fairly briefly, just to give you, as I said, an overview. So the first one, material form, includes all physical matter, including this body. And this body is, for many of us, a pretty powerful source of identification, there's often a very unconscious or a best subconscious belief that I am my body or my body is mine. And from that comes the delusion that this body should be under my control. I should be able to make it do exactly what I want and it should not get ill or injured. It shouldn't age and it definitely shouldn't die. And on one level, this is natural to have these. We have a primal survival instinct that it does want to protect and prolong our physical bodies. And so it's natural that when we're reminded of the body's impermanence and vulnerability, it can be quite disturbing. We see this in ourselves, but we also see it in wider society in ageism and in the way we treat older people, for example. And of course, how often in relation to death, death is a total taboo. Even on retreats, we avoid talking about it to some extent. And so most of us have a default tendency to avoid, ignore, go into denial around dying. And I was, as I was contemplating this in the context of the talk, I remembered when I was in Massachusetts, I used to volunteer in a hospice for a while. And one of the ladies that I visited, she stood out to me because she was one of the very few who was actually aware of her situation and open to talking about it. Many of the patients had written on their charts, do not discuss diagnosis, patient does not accept and these were people who were in the last weeks, maybe two weeks of their lives, which was true for this lady too. But she also had a sense of humor about her situation. And on one visit not long before she died, I came into her room and couldn't help but notice there was a giant bunch of shiny metallic helium balloons floating on the ceiling. And each of the balloons had written on it in big pink letters, Get Well Soon. <laughs> and the lady looked at me looking at these balloons and she just rolled her eyes. <laughs> As if she was saying, yeah, right. 
because she knew and she had accepted what her best friend who gave her those balloons couldn't, that within a few more days she would be dead. Now just to acknowledge that woman's friend was probably had good intentions and was doing her best to be kind. But in speaking with other people who are dying, one of the challenges is that friends and family often don't want to accept it or talk about it, so the dying person can feel even more alone. So we have this clinging to the body, and we don't know how to relate to the reality of dying and of death. It's just too fundamentally unpleasant. So this brings us to the second of the clinging aggregates, which is feeling tone, Vedana. Just that basic recognition of a sense contact as pleasant, unpleasant or neutral. So how does clinging show up here in relation to feeling tone? On one level it's pretty obvious, we've named it as that basic movement of clinging or resisting. If something's pleasant, the tendency to cling, to hold on, to try to prolong. If it's unpleasant, to resist it, push it away, and want it to stop. But that basic reactivity, it often doesn't stop there. It moves into liking and disliking, and we can build a whole identity out of our preferences around what we like and what we don't like that can start to define us. And we take on these preferences as being me, as who I am. So we say, for example, I love contemporary art, or I don't love right-wing politicians. We have these different ways that we take on identities. And if we think about our ordinary friendships, they're quite often based on shared likes or shared dislikes. And sometimes when we find out a friend or a partner acknowledges that they love something that we loathe or vice versa, it can be quite confronting because we're clinging to an identity in relation to what we like or dislike. So we're starting to move now into the terrain of the third clinging aggregate, which is perception or cognition, recognition. And this is a slightly technical term. It's the mind's capacity to recognize to label, to identify objects or experiences. And again, it's a natural and necessary function of the mind to do this. If we couldn't, we'd be in trouble. So if you imagine every time you wanted to make a cup of tea, you had to remember what the kettle was and what the tap was and what the cup was and how to get water and how to use all of those things. Just going about our daily lives would be exhausting, probably impossible. So on one level, perception is just something the mind does. But it's only problematic when we cling to these perceptions. So you might have noticed that in the sequence of the aggregates so far, we've started with pretty simple aspects of experience, the body and feeling tone. And now with this third aggregate, we're starting to get a little bit further away from immediate sense-based experience and into a more conceptual relationship to reality. So now we're in the world of names and labels and ideas and concepts. 
And one potential problem with this is that names are static. They're concepts that we overlay on an experience. And then we relate to that experience through the concept as if it's always the same. So a rose is a rose is a rose. We just go, yep, rose, got it, move on. We don't take in the unique textures and the colors and the form and the fragrance of this particular rose. Now, maybe that's okay with inanimate objects, but we do this also to people and we do it to ourselves. This is who I am. This is who my partner is. This is how my family members are. They always say that. They never do this. They're constantly being dysfunctional. And if there's no mindfulness, we cling to those perceptions. We believe them to be fixed and real and true. Who I am, who they are. So as I said in my talk the other night about working with afflictive mind states, it can be a very illuminating practice to tune in to our inner language, to look out for those eternalizing statements, and also for any statements that begin with I am, dot, 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 to see whether those statements are actually true, factually true, or whether, quite likely, they're a symptom of clinging and identifying with perceptions. So now we're moving into the terrain of the fourth clinging aggregate, which is Sankara, volitional mental formations, sometimes also translated as fabrications or constructions. And this category, and it's a loose category, it includes all the mental processes of the mind that take raw sense data and use it to fabricate stories, constructs, views, opinions, beliefs about our experience. And this too is a very potent source of identification, of reinforcing a fixed sense of self. So we can think of sankhara as the tendency to complexify our experience and to create narratives about our lives, those familiar stories that we tell ourselves about who we are, and that then we inhabit as if they were ultimately true, instead of something that we ourselves have constructed. And usually these stories are not examined. We don't recognize them as fabrications until or unless someone challenges some aspect of them. And then we might suddenly realize how much clinging is involved. So maybe you've had that experience of perhaps telling yourself some kind of story about the past for many years, and then later on finding out that some key piece of it wasn't factually true. Or finding out that someone else in that narrative had a completely different understanding of what happened. That they believed to be absolutely true even though it was completely the opposite of yours. And I think this is pretty common in families. If you have siblings, you might possibly have had the experience of wondering if they were grew up in the same family as you. <laughs> because their perception of your family history and yours can be so at odds. 
And even though it might be challenging, it's actually helpful to have these stories revealed for what they are as constructions and to realize that our life histories, they're not set in stone. There's an element of choice, of intention, of volition in creating that narrative. And so it's also possible to create different stories, find different truths that are equally valid. So sometimes trying to see ourselves in our histories from a different perspective, a different viewpoint, it can show where we might be clinging to these sankhara, holding on to our stories, and strangely often painful stories. We still need to bring kindness and compassion to this process of gradually disidentifying with whatever those narratives might be. Because we can't just dismiss them as, oh, I'm just clinging to Sankara. That would be cruel. We need to bring wisdom and compassion to this because these stories often are so deeply held in formation. And then the last of the five aggregates is consciousness itself. Now, again, consciousness is a natural function of the mind. It's just, in this context, it's the capacity to know what's happening at the six sense doors. So consciousness of sights and sounds, smells and tastes, physical sensations, mental activity. So consciousness here is just that basic knowing of all those different sense inputs. So in terms of clinging to consciousness, how does that show up? It refers to that tendency to identify with the knowing, with the mind itself. And this tendency is sometimes referred to as the last holdout of clinging because it can be quite subtle. In some ways it's easier to see how we cling to the previous aggregates. So we start to recognize, okay, yes, areas where I'm identified with the body and be able to let that go. We might start to recognize how we're identified with our likes and our dislikes and preferences, release that. We can see how we cling to our perceptions and our stories But identification with consciousness is harder to see because that residual sense of I am, I am my mind, is so fundamental. And it can feel, for some, like there's a little being inside our heads, Mm -hmm. just behind the eyes, that thinks and knows all of these changing experiences. And the idea that that might not be true either and that that's also is just another formation can be quite unsettling. So we are in the terrain of insight practice now, the understanding of anatta or not-self. And as I mentioned earlier, the deeper understandings of this happen through meditative insight. And the intellect alone is not able to figure this out. In fact, this whole understanding can be quite threatening to the intellect because the tendency of the intellect is to operate through deep patterns of needing to be in control. 
needing to be safe by working everything out and making it predictable. So to the intellect, the idea that there is no one in here in control might sound quite terrifying. But the actual direct experience is very different. And usually it brings with it deep relief, ease, peace and freedom. Now possibly you might not have had a deeper taste of that kind of freedom. But still you can begin to notice those moments when the mind is less caught up in clinging and the relative ease that comes with that. So this is a pretty huge arena and I could probably and actually have given a whole separate talk on each of these five aggregates. But the key point to keep in mind is that the less constellating there is around a fixed identity, there's literally more room in the heart and the mind for skillful qualities like the Brahma-Vihara to develop more fully. And this whole process is a natural unfolding. So we don't have to force it. What we can do is what we've been doing through this whole retreat. Keep setting up the right conditions and then let go of attachment to any results. So as inspiration for that, I'd like to close with a poem from one of the elder nuns from the Sutta collection known as the Teragata. And these are enlightenment poems or awakening poems from nuns who lived at the time of the Buddha many, many centuries ago. And this one was composed by Sister Uttama. And even though it was written many centuries ago, for me at least, it has quite a timeless quality. So she says, Four times, five, I ran amok from my dwelling, having gained no peace of awareness, my thoughts out of control. So I went to a trustworthy nun. She taught me the Dhamma, aggregates, sense spheres and elements. Hearing the Dhamma, I did as she said. For seven days I sat in one spot, absorbed in rapture and bliss. On the eighth, I stretched out my legs, having burst the mass of mental darkness. So thank you for your attention. Mm -hmm. Let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.